Millions of despairing men, women and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Guest, Luke Michael Ironside, who is one of our favorite guests, and I think one of yours also. I can tell because his shows always do well, and his shows always do well sort of per perpetually. Um, uh, there's been a recent surge, and I record this on September 10th, 2022. Um, and quite honestly, the, the show has doubled in size in the last month and, and possibly even tripled because uh, I'm on another platform where I upload the shows directly to a particular website and people are listening to it actually from that website, which doesn't show on the other, um, um, your other stats. Uh, and I'm on two, yeah, two other websites too, where I, I don't have access to that information and frankly, I haven't asked. Um, but if it's anywhere close to what what's happening on that other website, the the, the show might have quadrupled in the in the last couple of uh, uh, like in the last month, which is great. And I know that Luke's shows are doing well because I still show them in the top thirty, and they're not new shows; they keep popping up. And actually, the numbers are going up, which means new listeners are not just listening once; they are going back and listening to new sh old shows. So I thank all of the new listeners or newish listeners. I'm paying attention. Every one of you matters to me. Uh, please refer the show to your friends because it's sort of a genre-defined show. If you tell someone it's a cult, it's not always a cult. If you tell someone it's history, it's not always history. If you tell someone it's theosophy, it's not always theosophy. If you tell someone it's pop culture about monsters or cryptids, it's not always about those things either. So, uh, you know, I think it's a variety where all those things covered. Esoteric is the best term. I, I can use, but maybe eclectic is even better. Anyway, I'm leaving our guest hanging here. So, Luke Michael Ironside, thank you so much for being back on the show. 
All right, well, thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm always happy to be back. And this has been a recurring sort of a gimmick for us, but every time I've spoken to you, you're somewhere else. So last time I spoke to you, you were in Armenia. Uh, where are you now, if not Armenia? Yes, well, now I'm in Nairobi, Kenya, where I'm, I'm working at a, a local technical college, um, developing a course on business English. So for those of you who don't know, Luke, uh, you can probably tell from the accent, but he is from New Zealand, I think, originally. But in the, th I think this is your third show. Uh, so, you know, the first time you were in Brazil, the second time you were in Armenia, and now you're in Kenya. And, you know, and we've spoken in, in other, on other occasions in other places, and you've been in other places as well. And, and I think at least on one of the shows you sort of said, you know, when I was in Malta, <laughs> I'm like, of course you were. So um, anyway, so Luke is a fountain of information. But for those of you who don't know who he is, I'm going to give him a, a moment or so to introduce himself and, and give his, his credentials. So Luke, why don't you remind the folks who you are? Right. Well, I think uh, I'm a few different things, but in terms of esotericism, I've always had an interest in esoteric philosophy, particularly theosophy, but I've also had an interest in related fields such as hermeticism. Um, so I am quite involved with the Theosophical Society. Um, I served as the president of the Pranava Theosophical Lodge in the Philippines during my time living there. I've also been involved with the Virtual Center for Theosophical Studies and various other endeavors. Um, I'm also interested in esoteric Christianity. And so I'm involved with the Old Catholic Apostolic Church, and I'm currently serving as the General Secretary of the Old Catholic Education Society, which hosts online events uh, related to Old Catholic theology and liberal Catholic doctrines. Uh, so I'm very interested in, in Christianity, its history, its modern expressions, and specifically the esoteric side of Christianity, which I think is generally overlooked in mainstream denominations. So that's sort of me from the, the spiritual angle. Um, professionally, I'm interested in language, in linguistics, and the English language in particular, and I'm interested in education more broadly, in theories and methodologies of education. I'm also... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yes, yes. Well, one one last sort of area I'm very interested in is uh, genealogy and family history. I'm really fascinated in this field, and recently I've become quite involved with that. Um, I'm serving as the dean of the Society of the Descendants of the Conqueror, which is a lineage society for descendants of William the Conqueror and his wife, Matilda of Flanders. And I do some work for the Augustan Society in the USA in that capacity. And that's it, huh? Nothing else. <laughs> well, you know, I think there's there's always room for for more. You know, I'm 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 interested in in many different areas, and and if I can get involved, if I can do something in these different areas, I I like to, you know, I, I like to be practical. I, I like to. It's it's all a learning experience. I'm a student in all of these areas and a master of none. But I like to be a practical student. So when I'm learning, I like to engage with the topic, engage with the area and, and get involved in some way as part of the, the learning experience. And you're also 
a cleric in the old Catholic Church, right? That's right. I, I am a cleric in the in the old Catholic Apostolic Church. And I think for those who don't know, when we say the old Catholic Church, we don't mean the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Pope in Rome. That there's it's actually the old Catholic Apostolic Church, which is, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm not going to speak for anyone, but my understanding is that it's a modern church that uh, is trying to go back to the roots of uh, the first Christian semi-formalized churches rather than when everything became Catholic with a, a capital C, you know, for, formalized by Constantine, et cetera. It's uh, more more closely uh, aligned with, you know, maybe what, the, what, what Christ and the apostles, uh, you know, were doing contemporaneous and in the, you know, the, generations after uh you know ad 33 certainly yeah so it's it's a back to roots church but not in the sense that many conservative churches refer to themselves as as you know back door fundamentalist churches refer also refer to themselves as back to roots churches but it's definitely not fundamentalist in fact while it's called the old catholic apostolic church it was previously called the liberal catholic apostolic church and it's it's really a part of both the liberal catholic tradition which had roots uh in theosophy and the old catholic tradition which broke from the the roman church over doctrinal issues yes so it's a merger of the two and old catholic old the old catholic church is essentially catholicism without the pope it was all about the infallibility of the pope which caused the break from the church whereas liberal catholicism is is a completely different analysis and understanding and approach to christianity it's definitely a return to roots and even a return to a basic reevaluation of of questions about the afterlife the nature of christ the 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 nature of the priesthood it's, it's a, a different approach to all of this but it uses a lot of the anglican language the liberal catholic church was founded by two anglicans and um so a, a lot of the language is anglican a lot of the ideas also are similar to to those of the church of england um whereas it's definitely more liberal a bit more progressive at the same time, keeping the fundamental, most important aspects of Christianity at the heart. Okay, well, that's that's, that's a lot there, and I thank you for that, and hopefully folks can look into that if they're interested. And uh, Luke's been on the show periodically, so you can check out the prior shows, and he probably explains this uh, probably similarly, but you know, maybe more, or maybe just a little bit more to uh, supplement the information. Uh, and lastly, Luke is also involved in the same conference that I'm affiliated with, which is the NACON conference. So uh, it is a, I mean, you, if you are in London, there is a physical location, but it's mostly a virtual show. So uh, for those of you who are interested, it is, I believe, October 29th and 30th. Um, and tickets can be found at, and information. You don't have to go there just for tickets. You can see if you're interested first, but HTTPS colon backslash backslash capital N capital A capital C lowercase O N. So that's NACON dot capital E event uh, event bright is one word capital E V E N T B R I T E dot C O not com C O dot UK. So that is information on the conference. If you're interested, um, hopefully you are. And I don't think the virtual tickets are particularly expensive. And uh, it, it seems like it's a two-day affair. Uh, so you'll get the content both days. And I think if you 
Uh, I think there's also uh, a way afterwards to purchase it uh, perennially so that you always have it. Anyway, today's topic is hermetism. And hermetism is one of those words I've heard but never really know exactly what it means. I still don't, which is why Luke is here. It is not related directly to Hermes, the uh, Greek uh, god, the, the, the messenger of the gods. Uh, I'm not sure if it's directly related. I know it's not to, related to the French fashion house Hermes. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure if it's related to uh, who's sometimes described as Toth Hermes, Hermes or Hermes the Atlantean. Um, perhaps it is, I, you know, or at least those philosophies are. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I think that the whole Atlantean thing sort of is trying to talk about universal truth as a mother uh, mother culture. Um, so maybe there's the connection. But those are just my musings at this point. I have an expert here on it. I know he says he's not an expert, but he is. Um, so Luke, why don't you tell us about Hermetism? I, and you're the teacher, so I guess you can sort of take it from the top. W what's the name all about? And and I guess, you know, start from the main precepts. Right, certainly. Well, first of all, Hermeticism, to, to understand Hermeticism, we want to go into the roots of the word. And as a, you know, as a language teacher, I like to do that, as we've done in previous shows. So yes, Hermeticism comes from the name of Hermes, Hermes Trismeg Trismegistus. And now he's a bit of a mysterious figure. And what we would perhaps call a, a legendary or semi-legendary figure, uh, historically speaking. And to understand who Hermes Trismegistus was, we need to understand the culture of the time. So essentially, this was a time when there were two great nations, two, two, two great civilizations, um, sort of at the at the head of sort of philosophy and religious thinking. And, and these were Greece and Egypt, right? Which would later go on to influence and have this huge impact on Rome, the Roman, the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire. And then obviously through that onto Christianity and through that onto the Western world and onto to modern civilization. So really we're going back to the roots of civilization to understand what Hermeticism is and the this mysterious figure Hermes Trismegistus he was a syncretic figure he was he was a merger of the Greek god Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth so it was a merger of these two gods in this kind of philosopher figure and he, he's sometimes referred to as the first philosopher now mm. there's there's different kind of perspectives on how historical he was or how legendary he was. Certain religious systems see him as a historical figure, and you can find him in particular in mentioned in Islam, where he's, he's a figure mentioned in, in Islamic uh, writings, and also in the Baha'i religion, which is a more modern, uh, re recent, uh, syncretic religion. Um, but essentially he, he may or may not have existed and that's not really so important i always think the historicity of a person is, is not the not the important aspect what's important are the ideas which lie beyond the either historical or legendary figure and we find the same ideas with say to, to take a more sort of well-known figure we, we could compare 
Hermes just Megistus to the figure of Christ, mm-hmm. in that Christ is is also a semi-legendary figure, in that while he almost certainly existed, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that he did, um, the the nature of Christ and, and who Christ was, what Christ said, what Christ did in the, you know, the 30 years before the the the, the Bible um, speaks of him is it, all kind of unknown, right? And Hermes Trismegistus is similar in that he's a figure who's had a huge impact on the world, but his origins or his historicity are unknown. It's the same, it's the same as Christ in that sense. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of figures in what we call history that it's not quite clear that they were historical. I mean, not just Christ. There's Moses. Um, to a lesser extent, Arthur, but when you were describing yeah. uh, Hermes Trismegistus, I hope I pronounced that even close. Uh, I was thinking Merlin, you know, sort of the the you yes. know the, the the philosopher that went from place to place, and um, you know, you know, may, you know, maybe like the Dalai Lama, the title was passed along. Apparently, Merlin means magician. I don't know. This is a sort of an aside, but are you familiar with the work of Ralph Ellis? No, I, the name doesn't ring a bell actually. Okay, that, 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 that's fine. It, it, Ralph's from the UK. He, I've recorded a show with him, but it hasn't dropped yet because we're going to do two parts, and I think I'm going to you know, drop one right before the new year and one right after the new year, basically, because they, they go together, and, and he has an interesting historical... Uh, he, he believes that he has ascertained who the historical Adam and Eve were, who the historical Moses was, and who historical Jesus was. And it's, you know, it's it's very interesting. I'm not co-signing or saying I, I agree that it's fact uh, or not, but it's 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 compelling listening anyway. Um, but I, it sounds like someone who you may want to check out just, just to sort of have that vantage point. Anyway, um, but it made me think of what you were talking about made me think of it. Anyway, so yeah, so uh, a bit like Jesus in that the whether there was a Jesus or not, human philosopher, semi-divine, divine, doesn't matter because the ideas associated with the figure of Christ uh, have eclipsed whether or not he was historical or not. I mean, he's he's cemented in history just, just because the, the ideas have survived and, and, you know, become probably the predominant religion, you know, uh, of the world. Certainly. Yeah. Okay, so back and to it's our... It's interesting you mentioned Arthur okay. and, and Milan. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. Speaking over each other there. But yes, I was saying it's, it's interesting you brought up uh, Arthur and Merlin because actually I'm also an Arthurian researcher is, is another thing I'm really interested in. And actually that was my introduction to esotericism. I became interested in sort of esotericism and the occult through really originally a childhood fascination with Arthur and Merlin and the Merlin's sort of druidic connections. And it's it's through that really that I found everything else, my fascination with this idea of, of a class of people searching for wisdom, which is what Merlin was, a druid. Um, and yes, that that sort of led me to the rest. So just as kind of a side note, yeah. So it's 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 interesting because there is a connection. All of these great figures are sort of semi-historical and it seems of it. But the 
the history is perhaps less important than the ideas. Yeah, and and as it's funny, you should say that that you're also an, a student of Arthur, because a, of course you are, and and b, we're actually going to be doing a, a little series here on Arthur. One that that that's part of what uh, uh, Mr. Ellis is is going to be covering in part two, and then I have a, another ge- uh, prior guest of the show, uh, Laurel from the Midnight Myth, who is probably going to talk about Arthur more from the more traditional uh literature pop culture sense but i'm not even sure i don't know what her presentation uh is going to be and also mark ollie who uh also has theories on arthur and arthurianism and you know maybe uh maybe i'll have ask you to join in on that too at at some point and uh we'll get to it because i was always going to get to arthur i just didn't think i was going to get to arthur served three ways or what might end up being (laughs) six or seven ways um, I, ne- I never even knew that was a concept until I watched Top Chef and learned, hey, pork three ways or whatever it was. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so I didn't mean to cut you off and in, in that, but yeah, let's so let's let's get to hermetic hermeticism, and uh, you know you were taking us to so w- when was uh, Hermes or Hermes supposed to assuming he was a historical figure? When did he live? Right. Well, that's a good question, but considering that there is, let's say, there is no evidence of his existence, of his physical life, of his existence, there, there's only the ideas that emerged. So ba- basically what happened was these ideas came about as Hermeticism, and they were attributed to this figure, Hermes Trigmegistus. So that means we don't really know when he lived. There, There is no evidence of his existence therefore there's no sort of date that we can pinpoint um his existence but all we can all we can really look at is the ideas and the name the you know going into the etymology of his name and consider that this must have been at a time period when both greece and egypt were sort of significant but because cause credit combination it was probably sometime during the hellenistic period so i think we'd be looking at somewhere sort of in the um, at least but uh, then sorry, again the signal cut off right as you did the i heard uh during the hellenistic period and then at least uh, so i'm guessing you're going to say somewhere between you know 400 bce and you know 50 bc something like that Yes, certainly. Yeah, that that would be a good pinpoint for his life based on the etymology and the ideas. Um, But as often is the case, it's quite possible that a figure existed earlier under a different name and that this name was a later sort of sort of addition to the story. He may not have originally carried this name. He may have been a, you know, a figure uh, with with any any name, you know, he he was sort of traditionally considered to be a an ancient Egyptian priest or philosopher. So, yes, considering that he 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 could have sort of lived in any period at which Egypt was at its height, and this may have been before the Hellenistic period. But it's not a title like Caesar or Pope or Dalai Lama. It it's it, it, we we believe anyway. That if if there is a historical figure that it was a singular person, um, and maybe with followers, but not 
uh, sort of like a mantle that you like, you know, the popes change their names. A lot of times kings change their names once they get crowned. Uh, it's, it's, it's not someone who took on the mantle or, or do we not even know if that's the case? Yeah, it, it's difficult to say in that I, I, some historians have the perspective that he's simply this syncretic combination of, of the god Hermes and of the god Foth, which is possible. So an invented figure based on these two two gods. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is, of course, it was it was a man, you know, it was a, a living philosopher um, who either took the name Hermes out of dedication to the god or was later given this name, right? Perhaps given it by um, hundreds of years or even thousands of years after his death, quite possibly. So the simple answer is we don't know anything about this guy. If he existed, did he live? Was he real? Where did he originate? We really don't know. So we know a lot more about the ideas, but very little about the figure. Okay. Well, so we have here the name Hermes, and you're indicating that it, it's sort of the merger of the god Greek god Hermes, which is the Roman god Mercury, uh, possibly has parallels in other panoplies as well, or pantheon, sorry, uh, and the and the Egyptian god Toth. Now, Hermes, you know, I, I know that the Greek gods are, are typically attributed, which, you know, with a bunch of things that they associate with. Hermes was the messenger of the gods, but I think he was also the god of medicine, although not necessarily healing, and, and probably a few other things. Uh, Toth, as far as I know, was like a god of wisdom. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm correct about that. So, is Toth and Hermes, are, are they sort of the same gods of different panoplies, or does it actually a merger of two different gods to put their, uh, their associated characteristics, traits, powers, whatever you want to call them, together? Right, that's a very good question. And yes, actually, the simple answer is that Foth is the Greek equivalent of Hermes. They, okay. they are essentially one and the same god, uh, which explains the... Yeah, explains the name, especially considering that he's usually referred to as a Greek, uh, sorry, an Egyptian figure. He's often considered to be an Egyptian priest or an Egyptian philosopher. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean much because when you consider the, the death of Alexander the Great and what happened to his empire after that and sort of the rise of the the rise of Hellenistic Egypt, it's quite possible he was Greek or Egyptian or both or one or the other. It, it's very hard to say because of the, the extreme merging of cultures which happened in that period, right? Right, Unless yeah. he predated the the Alexander, Alexander's reign, which is, which is possible right. as well. So for folks who don't know, and I have to think that most of my listeners probably know this stuff already, but for new listeners or maybe listeners who don't know are just checking this out, um, Greek, Greeks was sort of the rulers of Egypt for a while under Alexander. And, you know, one of the reasons that Cleopatra, which was in the Roman era, was so popular is that she spoke Egyptian. Most of the, you know, most of the pharaohs and the people in the Egyptian royal house didn't speak Egyptian. They didn't even bother to learn. They spoke Greek because Greek was the language of the aristocracy and the learned. And that happened in a lot of cultures in ancient Britain. Only the Druids were allowed to read and write. Um, in 
uh, czarist Russia, the, the court spoke French. Um, so uh, apparently King George III didn't speak English, he spoke German. Uh, so this is this was not unusual really until until even recent times. It's it's sort of like, you know, most of my audience is American, so figure America under the rule of the British. You know, is someone British or are they American? Uh, there's a lot of British customs here, and at, and at certain points it becomes indistinguishable. But the 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 hoity-toity, the the creme de la creme, the you know the high high society in colonial uh, America. You know, probably want to associate themselves with the crown and lords, and you know, and and royalty, and probably spoke more of the queen's English or the king's English then. Well, the king's English now. Excuse me. Um, I just forgot the the queen just passed. Um, and uh, so th this is this is very common for uh, another country to have a huge influence over another country. And and looking at it in modern times, it probably doesn't make any sense. But Alexandria is named after. Alexander the Great, um, just for example. So, okay, that 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 little sort of footnote aside, I, I I give the floor back to you. Right. Yes. Definitely. And so that I I think in some ways that cultural exchange makes it more difficult to sort of identify who he was because well, this is at a time when you know just just after Alexander's sort of conquering of 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 so much of the world and the influence of of greece and also the, the sort of the the beginnings of the rise of rome all these things sort of happening at the same time there was this great amount of cultural exchange and so it it makes it more difficult to identify where he was from who he was and the fact that he carries the name of a god also makes it a bit more difficult to identify was he historical? Was he a simply a you know a mythological figure? Was he somewhat semi-historical or somewhere in the middle of all that? And while you were mentioning language and you know the complications that language can cause, it's also interesting to consider the linguistically, seeing as that will be a topic for a, a future talk, the linguistic influence of the name Hermes. Uh, in fact, the we use words which have been influenced by the name Hermes in everyday life. Hermes is the the root for the words such as merchandise or merchant or commerce. All these words come from from Hermes, uh, considering that he was in many ways the messenger god and the merchant god. Right, so that's just an interesting side note as well. I don't know his last name. I mean, I may be reading too much into this and confusing the roots of different words, but the last name, it sounds like, you know, starts with try, which is three. Mm -hmm. the, the second part sort of sounds like magister, which is often magician. So if you're thinking three magician, three magi, that's sort of like the story of Mithras and, and the Christ, the Trinity. Am, am I just making associations that aren't there or is, or is there something that is there or there there? Right, good point, yeah. So the, the surname, well, it's not exactly a surname, it's actually an, an epithet. Uh -huh. And so, yeah, it, it, it's an epithet, which was quite common back there to to have sort of the given name plus the name which is based on one's accomplishments or what one is associated with. So it's very much the same as, let's say, Alexander the Great. It's an epithet. And it actually means thrice great. 
Oh, okay. uh, trimagistus means thrice great. And the simple, the simplest, uh, the, the simplest understanding of this name or theory as to the origin of, of this epithet is that it means both the great, the great, the great. This is just, he's really great. The really great, <laughs> uh, the really great, um, for or, or Hermes in the sense actually yeah so that that's that's one understanding of it um and the, obviously considering his influence and then the rise of Christianity shortly after you might also take the approach of the significance of the number three in Christianity and so many Christian uh, uh, church fathers and Christian philosophers in the years following saw him perhaps as a sort of wise philosopher or prophet who foresaw the coming of Christianity. Therefore, his name, the Thrice Great, referring to the nature of the Trinity. Okay, so there is some possible connection there, almost certainly. All right, well, let's find out what made him so great that he had to be called great three times. So what what was he espousing to his students and and what did what did they believe him and is it still sort of the same today some 2000 or so years later right certainly and and to lead into that actually one more note about his name is that he's sometimes considered to have been the third in a line of, of great philosophers following Enoch and Noah and him being oh. the third, that's that's another possible sort of interpretation. And also he's sometimes called the Thrice Great to consider his role both as a priest, a philosopher, and a king. So that's another sort of uh, understanding that he was the merger of these three areas. And when you think about it, so if the priests are the, the religious, say, perspective on life, and then the philosophers look at the philosophical questions and the kings look at the the political side of things he was considered to be the amalgamation of all three and so hermeticism was considered to be a philosophy which dealt with every aspect of life dealt with the religious aspect dealt with the philosophical aspects and also dealt with the political aspects on the idea that if you are rooted in a solid understanding of religion and philosophy you are then able to govern well and be a wise king or a wise leader right so that that's another interesting approach yeah it sure is um yeah it, it, in my head i was thinking about uh, captain john sheridan from babylon 5 that uh yeah, he maybe he's the next uh, Hermes, uh, at least in fiction. Who knows? Uh, but most of you probably haven't watched that show. But if you haven't, get started because we're going to be doing a, a review show on that with uh, our friend uh, Matt Williams pretty soon. Um, just warning you, it's a little it's a little corny, and the production isn't so great. But there's a fantastic story in there. Uh, at least seasons one through four, you can you can season one can be a little bit rough, and season five you can probably skip though after four seasons you probably will feel obligated to, to finish that out anyway sorry about that digression I'm, I'm sure you didn't watch babylon 5 but uh um uh, things hit me when they hit me <laughs> right yes and so having that sort of historical and etymological basis we can now sort of turn to the the philosophy itself what what is hermeticism what do hermeticists believe right so to look at that, we need to we need to see the 
think about the texts. The texts collectively are called the Hermetica. These are all of the texts which are considered to have been written by Hermes Trimagistus or else by his followers. Again, the authorship is unknown for most of these texts. And so the, the Hermetica, the most well-known book in the Hermetica is the Corpus Hermeticum. And this is a sort of religio-philosophical text. Uh, it was written in Greek and it was compiled in ancient Byzantium. It was also translated into Latin later on because, again, it had a huge impact on philosophical thought and also on religious thought. It actually went on to influence such significant figures as Giordano Bruno. Giordano Bruno was perhaps the best-known hermeticist in history. and I'm sure you've probably uh, mentioned him previously on the show or or had other speakers who have mentioned him. And so, yes, Giordano Bruno is probably the, the most famous hermeticist in history. And this was, you know, a, going, this was 400 years ago, four or 500 years ago. So, you know, he, he was lived a long time after the possible figure of uh, Hermes Trimagistus. So going back to the basic ideas that we find in the Hermetica, uh, I like to start with the biggest ideas and then sort of go to particulars from that. So thinking about what is God, what is God according to the Hermetica? Uh, the Hermetica considers God to be an ultimate reality which takes on many different names. And we find names and titles such as Lord and Father. Obviously, these are names which are very common in Christianity, whether there was a sort of influence there or either from from Hebrew religious philosophy or else the other way around where Hermeticism perhaps influenced Christianity in the future. But we also interestingly find God referred to as nous, which is mind in Greek. So this is a, a very interesting um epithet, which is not generally referred to God. When we think of God from the Christian perspective or from the Jewish perspective or from the Islamic perspective, we, we wouldn't think of the word mind as being a word for God. Yeah. In fact, it sounds a bit new agey. It sounds like something which, uh, you know, we, we might hear in the new age community or, or in, you know, more, more recent um, new religious understandings of God. But in the Hermetica, God is referred to as mind, which is really interesting. And in fact, we find in the Hermetica a philosophy centered around this idea of the mind having a much more significant place than is given in other philosophies. Also very interesting. Uh, yes, sorry. No, so it's, it's, it's sort of like the matrix, but your own, you, you know. Yes. A divine matrix, I suppose. Yes, and you know, in in more recent interpretations of Hermeticism, such as in the Kybalion, right, by William Walker Atkinson, the Kybalion, you know, or well, traditionally attribu attributed to the free initiates, um, God is referred to as the universal mind. Right. So we have this conception of a, a universal mind, a single consciousness in which we all share. So this is this is an idea that we do find in the Hermetica. Yes. And that relates also to another very important epithet, which is the all or the one. 
So while in Christianity, God is referred to as a singular entity in the sense that he is free in one, but singular. These three are not distinct. They are essentially one being. We also have this idea in Hermeticism, except Hermeticism sort of expands this to include everything in the universe, observable or not. So to simplify the answer as to who is God, or perhaps better, what is God, according to the Hermetic understanding, the answer would be that God is everything that is, was, and will be. The totality of existence, both both manifested and unmanifested. And this yeah. is an idea in theosophy as well. Yes, and, and also in, in Hindu uh, theology. In Hindu theology, you have the idea of power Brahman. So to understand the idea of God in Hermeticism, it's very helpful to compare it to the Hindu idea of power Brahman, the absolute, this not quite a being as such, but being itself. Indistinguishable. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I understand the, the concept. It's almost like, uh, you know, animism or, you know, shamanic sort of, you know, what we think are first religions, but sort of everything has a spirit, but it, it's also guided by an, an intelligence. Yes. And interestingly, the, the Greek word for all is pan. And if you think about it, this is the root word for pantheism mm -hmm. or panentheism. And these are two very similar um, outlooks. Pantheism essentially says that everything in existence is an aspect of God and, and God is the totality of existence. Panentheism states that God is the totality of existence and extends beyond existence is more than what we know right so I'd, I'd say technically hermeticism is closer to the second of those two god is everything but more than everything right. god, every, god, god it, exists outside of our time in our time but yes. but beyond it as well yes because the, the problem with a consideration of everything is there's always the limit to what we know of everything so essentially the distinction is simply that there is much we don't know that we don't know you know what's outside of this universe are there multiple universes or is this universe infinite and and sort of so panentheism states well god is that as well the extras you know whatever is outside of of this universe we inhabit yes and so the essential theology therefore states that god is both the all the create and the creator of all so it sounds like a, a paradox or a contradiction, because how can, if, if God is essentially the universe, if we're using universe in the broadest possible sense of the term to mean everything that is, or the right. multiverse or whatever you might say, then how could the universe or the multiverse have created itself? So that's sort of the, the mystery which is found in, in this philosophy of Hermeticism. And further, a very interesting idea, which is also a very central idea in theosophy, is that all created things existed first in the mind of God. Therefore, that God envisioned everything in existence, right down to the, you know, the details, right down to this very moment, in his mind before it came into existence. 
Therefore, God is not just the creator, but is in fact the nature of the cosmos itself. He is the essence or the nature of the cosmos, the substance from which everything comes forth, but also that governing principle which orders it and and puts it into sort of keeps everything in order and prevents everything from falling into to chaos or anarchy okay well that sort of makes sense yes and so the all to use the hermetic term rather than god because you know obviously the god was not the term used but god is a helpful term and a term which was actually applied later by by christian theologians who were very influenced and and interested in the hermetica yeah so the all is transcendent as the creator you know as the creator of the universe transcendent in the sense that the all exists beyond the universe but also imminent being the the universe itself was the term that was used if it was not god was it the all or was it the mind yes the all was used uh, also the mind nous in greece in, in greek yes b- both of these terms were were used in their you know greek equivalents certainly okay. That's, yeah okay all right so i think that the concept while it's enormous is you know rather easy to understand is that yes you know god, god is both cre- designer creator uh, controller and knows what's going to happen next as well because it's all because it's it's already been done in god's mind certainly and i think that's what's really interesting about hermeticism is that it is perhaps the simplest simplest religio or religious sort of philosophy which has been presented to the world it is an extremely simplified idea about the nature of God, the nature of the universe, the nature of our interconnectedness. The ideas are extremely simple. And a good introduction to these ideas, while not a primary source, but an introduction to the the fundamental ideas can be found in the Kybalion, which I mentioned before, which is not, as it claims, actually an ancient text of Hermetic philosophy. It, it's a reasonably modern um, text written in the early 20th century by one uh, American lawyer by the name of William Walker Atkinson. But despite that fact, it it actually does manage to capture these ideas and put them in a modern language very easily. Um, so that really important concepts in Hermeticism. One is This means a singular doctrine, a single theology. And the idea in Hermeticism is that there's one truth, one true theology. But this isn't in the sense that one religion is right and all other religions are wrong. Most religions will agree with the idea that there is one true theology. There's one truth, right? But the find in many churches or in many denominations is the idea that, you know, we're right and you're wrong. Right. We, we, we have the truth. Now, the difference in the Prisca Theologia, in this doctrine of, of Hermeticism, is that all religions have the truth. And that, in fact, they all teach the same thing. So essentially that this one truth was given by God to humanity. And due to the cultural differences, due to different languages, different interpretations, these, this one truth took on many different mythologies and forms. 
Right. So essentially, the idea in Hermeticism is that Hermeticism, Christianity, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, they all teach the same thing. They're, they're all one and the same truth, the same theologia, clothed in different forms. They have their different mythological figures. They have different languages. They also have different laws or customs based on the particular interpretation. So there's because just because say christianity says one thing and islam says another and the two disagree with each other according to the hermetic understanding this is a this is a conversation which has caused the conflict it's not a conflict with the basic idea it's, it's a cultural contradiction it's, it's, a, oh. it's a cultural interpretation of the so, one truth so people uh, misinterpret or interpret correctly, depending on where they are. Um, and that's also part of the, you know, God foresaw that, in fact, and, and made it so. Yes, yeah, essentially. So, for example, if one was to consider certain restrictions, for example, you know, you shouldn't eat this food or people men or women should dress in this or that way these are like interpretations of the one truth but not the one truth itself the one truth is more universal in its understanding so the one truth might is, is commonly a common example of it is the doctrine that one should treat one's neighbor as oneself right to be brotherly towards one's neighbor to treat one's neighbor as oneself to love thy neighbor this kind of idea right mm -hmm. so th this this is a concept which can be found in all religions it's universal so this would be considered to be a part of the prisca theologia a part of the hermetic doctrine which is universal but a particular restriction like wearing a burqa or not eating pork or you know something like that which might be found in one particular religion now th this is considered to be an interpretation of the universal truth but not the universal truth itself okay i mean i i understand the distinction i i you know i, I sort you know the the big question which i can't probably can't ever be answered is well why you know and and besides you know there's bigger things than why can't somebody put a slice of cheese on a cheeseburger uh, or a hamburger, um, you know, versus why is there war, famine, and plague? Um, I don't know if Hermeticism gets into that, and I don't know where that comes up in the story. But, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, that, 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 that there's a distinction between human customs and practices, which vary uh, by community uh, or within the community, and, and I guess people can sort of, sort of self-govern on those things uh you know as, as long as they're going in the direction of the universal truth or or maybe not even as long it's just it's all it's all part of something that you know it, it's all part of god's plan I, I mean i guess is that the bottom line yes essentially and you know I, another really good way to understand the distinction and, and sometimes this is is called the esoteric and the exoteric the inner and the outer another idea would be that all religions teach to cause no harm right they all they teach non-violence they teach peace they teach causing non-harm and this is interpreted differently by different religions so if one was to consider the vegetarianism of many hindus and Buddhists, 
this is taking that universal truth of yeah so i was talking about vegetarianism as an example of the principle of non-harm all right so in hinduism and in buddhism this is often taken to non-harm is taken as to mean that one should not eat meat whereas in christianity the principle of non-harm is interpreted as one not committing acts of of murder or violence against others yeah well of how a universal principle can take on different right and and i'm sure that the folks out there are saying well explain this explain that I, i'm not going to ask luke to do that i don't know that he can yeah well then explain the crusades or explain jihad or you know explain you know witch burnings whatever you know yes. i'm sure there's examples everywhere you know and then you know if everything has life what you know plants have life too and that that I'm not asking Luke to do that. He's just explaining the, the beliefs of hermetism. I know it's very tempting to say, well, explain this, explain that. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this to the poor guy. I don't know that he wants to or can, and we'd probably be here forever and never reach a conclusion anyhow. Right. Well, that, that's actually a really good point. I'll, I rather, yeah, I won't attempt to explain the, you know, the contradictions, which obviously take place in all religions, but just to, to briefly comment on it. So again, hermeticism does talk about that by saying that there are perfect truths the truth is the truth is one the truth is perfect and these are perfect principles but humanity being imperfect is unable to apply perfect truths so it's impossible there is no one religion that could implement these truths perfectly and therefore all religions will result in violence and you know, in the, these kinds of contradictions to their teachings, right? It's it's there's there's no sort of solution to that due to the imperfection of humanity would be the basic answer of that. Well, so it sounds like the some sort of Ragnarok or Armageddon or Revelations, whatever you want to call it, that down the line. You know, no matter what, Endgame. I think that's a you know that that's pan neutral is Endgame, um, or, or is is this not you know the is this not uh, oh my God what's the word I'm looking for is this not such a, a universal end is there no is that not part of the the belief system? Uh, yeah. So actually, what what's quite interesting about Hermeticism is it doesn't really have that end of the world type doctrine it doesn't really make revelations about the future uh which is interesting as well and, and so rather than having some kind of end game in hermeticism that there, there there is a reference to reincarnation right and actually i i can quote from a quote from one of the the hermetica uh in which Hermes trimagistus asks O oh, son, how many bodies have we to pass through? How many bands of demons? Through how many series of repetitions and cycles of the stars before we hasten to the one alone? And from that quote, we understand that the, the end game, if you like, is not some dramatic sort of event like Ragnarok or like the the tribulations of, of the Book of Revelation, but rather it's unity unity with the one unity with god is the end game so very similar to the hindu or buddhist doctrines interesting and uh, you know i keep struggling whether this is a philosophy or a religion i keep you know having to remind myself this is 
pre-Christianity yet, but but not necessarily pre-Judaism, um, but there were obviously religions that predated both of those things, um, and we've covered some of them on the show. Uh, so, uh, you know, in in a lot of ways, religion and philosophy really are are almost one and the same in, in, in a lot of ways, especially depending on the philosopher. So I'm trying to keep my head straight there and then resist temptation to keep asking you why, why, or but what, or but what. Um, so, okay, so let's go back to your order of things. Uh, so you talked about the, the greater principle. We clarified that there is no, uh, you know, end game. There's no, you know, apocalypse here um, in, the, in the doctrine. So what are some of the other giant precepts? I mean, the first part of it sounds very attractive. I, I, I could see how the first part would, would get people to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm into that. Um, and I think a lot of religions and denominations and probably sects and new ages and, you know, are, are trying to, you know, get to something like that. It's the second part where <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to say, all right, well, you don't have the answer for that then, you know, well, you know, how are you better than anyone else? Um, but I mean, not you, but uh, yeah, hermeticism. Um, so what are the other sort of the precepts of the concepts that we should know about? Sure, there's a, there's a few other, you know, very central ideas. And just briefly before that, I think, yeah, so hermeticism sets forward these principles and then <clears throat> acknowledges that we can't always achieve our in our attempts to live by these principles. So that's the first sort of difficulty there. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, I think is an important thing to add in there according to the Hermetic philosophy. So Hermeticism might say, okay, well, these are the universal principles. Religions fail to live by these universal principles while still holding them as parts of their doctrines or theologies. But it doesn't mean that they should just not try. It's still a better world in which we try to live towards these principles and fail than a world in which we don't try to live by the principles and therefore always fail or always uh, always live in you know a, a world without principles so i think that's probably a an important sort of disclaimer to the fact that religions may not always follow their beliefs you know for, put into practice their beliefs <coughs> Are there hermetical leaders? Are there churches? Are there equivalents to priests? Uh, is it more of a school? Is, is there any structure? You know, are there lodges? You know, I, I I don't even know the right term to use, but I think you you know, is there some sort? Is it an institution with chapters and brick and mortars with leaders, or is it just sort of a philosophy that that's out there? That's a really good question. And going back in history, there may have been organized lodges there may have been you know initiated priests and so on they very likely were um but nowadays no so okay. we, we we could say that nowadays there have been individual organizations which either exist or have existed which are hermetic and which have had their own organizational structures but none have spoken for all of hermeticism or claim to have spoken for all of hermeticism hermeticism has generally been practiced in small either individually or in small groups small lodges uh, and usually these are groups which have existed only for short periods of time you know come into existence maybe for a, you know a few generations before collapsing after the 
the death of their leaders. Uh, we could definitely see some relationship between masonry, Freemasonry, and Hermeticism. There's definitely Hermetic principles, which have carried across, and maybe the structures and the rituals as well have carried across into Freemasonry. Obviously, also in Theosophy. Theosophy is a very Hermetic system of thought as well, and the practice of lodges is also perhaps reminiscent of how ancient Hermeticists might have met um, but no, there's no there's no organization. There's certainly no sort of head of hermeticism or priests of hermeticism. So really, it's quite an individual thing. It's, it's a philosophy where certain groups might say that they're influenced by hermeticism. I've never really met someone who calls themselves a hermeticist, but I've met many people who would consider their beliefs to be hermetic, if that makes sense. Sure. How does how do Gnostics differentiate from Hermeticism? Um, yeah, that's I love the question. Uh, um, yes, there's, there's certainly some connections between the two. I would say that they both originated from different, you know, separately. Um, but the Hermetic understanding would be that Gnostics also are one branch of the Prisca Theologia, that they also understand and interpret the truth in different ways. But one big difference is I would say that Hermeticism is a very positive and optimistic belief system, whereas Gnosticism has a bit more of a focus perhaps on the fall of mankind, right? So there's certainly a relationship, but I think that overall perhaps Hermeticism has a more positive perspective, whereas Gnosticism, depending on its interpretation, for example, such as Christian Gnosticism, tends to see the universe as being essentially evil or essentially fallen. Uh, but Hermeticism would consider the universe to be essentially good. Is there non-Christian Gnosticism? Um, I'd say that Gnosticism has taken on a variety of forms as it's come into relationships with other philosophies. So, yeah, whether Gnosticism is entirely Christian or a breakaway from Christianity or something which transcends Christianity, it's a very difficult question to answer. I definitely think there's sort of a distinction. I think Christianity, certain Christian churches can be Gnostic, and also certain Gnostic churches can be Christian, but they're not necessarily one and the same thing. So certainly I think if you were to take the, the essential ideas of Gnosticism and to take those outside of the Christian con context, there's no need for Gnosticism to necessarily be Christian. Okay. Uh, how about your church, the old Catholic uh, Epistological <laughs> Church? I mean, is, is it similar to... Uh, hermetic or is it similar to Gnostic or is it neither of those things? Good. Good question. Yeah. So it, it technically it's, it's neither hermetic nor Gnostic. Um, it's in, in many, it, it's a Christian, it's simply a Christian church, which is open to esoteric ideas. So it doesn't mean that everyone in the church is esoteric or that esotericism is taught in the church. It means that members of the church and members of the clergy are free to explore without considering them as necessarily being in contradiction to 
Christian ideas. Now, this is a bit different from, say, the Roman Catholic Church, which would consider many, not all, but many esoteric ideas to be sort of in contrast to church teaching. So rather, we are free to kind of explore esoteric ideas and those alongside Christian ideas and then make up our own mind as to whether or not. So let me let me come up with some examples and see if they, if I have this right or wrong. So in sure. in the tradition, the Catholic Church, you know, obviously, if you engage in witchcraft or follow, you know, Wicca a little bit, well, Wicca is a religion, so you couldn't do both. But if you were you were exploring it uh, in in the regular Catholic Church, that would be considered, you know, a heresy or a sin or or anyway. So you'd be there'd be recrimination. But in the old Catholic Church and Hermeticism it's it's okay it's 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 okay to experiment i don't know if there's a line anywhere where once you cross it it's not okay but is, is that is that sort of fair to say i'm sorry the connection has isn't great can you repeat that yeah how about now better okay yes so well to paraphrase from the old catholic apostolic church's website the church neither encourages nor discourages an exploration of esoteric systems or theosophy. Okay. And, yes. uh, but and it, right about it has the, roots. Uh, I'm, I presume I'm right about the Catholic Church uh, and probably most churches too. The, I mean, it was the Protestants who did the witch burnings, at least in, in you know, the United States. Uh, you know, I, I don't know about other sure. places. Um, what about Hermeticism? Is, is it accepting of those types of explorations? Certainly, yes. In in Hermeticism, you the doctrines are doctrines are universal principles. They're not moral codes. So there's a difference there. For example, in Hermeticism, there's the statement that all is one, but there isn't a statement about what we should do with that knowledge. That's for us to discover. So instead of saying all is one, therefore we must. Um, dedicate time to charity or we need to do this or do that it kind of leaves it to the individual to interpret well what do we do with the universal principle and so in that sense it might sound like it's less practical but actually i think that's not the case so if we were to consider what religions generally do a religion might say give a universal principle uh, for example, in Christianity, we get the principle um, that everyone is created in God's image. Therefore, we should respect all people. You know, we, we can say churches will teach us that we shouldn't be racist. We shouldn't discriminate against other people. We should be of service to other people. We should try to help the poor and so on. So that's giving kind of an interpretation of the universal principle. In Hermeticism, you'll get the universal principle, but you won't get the interpretation. You have to make the interpretation. Okay, very interesting. Are there any other major precepts uh, or, yeah, major or important, sure. maybe if they're major, of Hermeticism that everyone should know to uh, better understand it? Because I, I feel like I've sort of taken us off the path of asking about Gnosticism and the old Catholic uh church and, and things like that so uh, i want to make sure we sort of stay on path sure yes well I, I can give one more sort of major principle which is of course the hermetic axiom as it's often called as above so below so th this is a, a really famous yeah axiom of course and it, it's really influenced the occult and esotericism 
perhaps more than any other singular statement, I mm. think. And the, the full quote is this, that which is above is like to that which is below, and that which is below is like to that which is above. Very simple idea. Again, really simple, just like the idea that all is one and that God is both imminent and transcendent. Really simple ideas, but really amazing deeply philosophical ideas. These are not ideas which can be easily dismissed or easily set aside. It's not a radical idea. If you were to consider this idea in contrast with the idea of the resurrection of Christ, for example. So in Christianity, a fundamental idea is the resurrection of Christ. Now, this is an idea which really challenges you. It's a really difficult idea to accept because it defies ordinary logic it defies ordinary ideas of you know of science of biology of of how you know how the universe works uh but when you take a hermetic idea as above so below it doesn't defy logic it doesn't defy your basic ideas it it might not be it's not the way we normally think but it's an entirely rational idea which is interesting so it's both rational but also not in the way that we usually think about the world yeah and so, I, hear, I hear that statement all the time i hear it in astrology i hear it in numerology yes. I, I you know i hear it in, in all sorts of contexts and this might be a dan brown thing i don't know but i i i somewhere in my head i thought that's how the star of david was formed you took two triangles and you sort of merged them together and that was the as as above so below now you know according to what my understanding is is that you know, the Star David came from King David, or at least that era, which is, you know, before Solomon, before Christ, and certainly before, you know, Toth, uh, you know, Hermes, uh, uh, Trismestus. Uh, so is this something that existed before and Hermeticism adopted, or is Hermeticism actually the origin of it? And so it's been applied, sort of, it's been retrofitted or prospectively fitted into other uh, philosophies or belief systems. Yeah, it, it sort of could go anyway. I mean, again, with something being a universal principle, Hermeticism would say that all of these ideas predated Hermeticism. Every idea um, so is no universal. Hermeticism so no claims no intellectual property rights on it. it no. It, it, in fact, it, it says, yeah, of course it existed before because it's a universal yeah. truth. We're, we're, just, we're, exactly. just, we're just codifying that we accept this as a universal truth. Exactly. So Hermeticism would say that, oh, yes, this is the same idea that you're going to find in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. You're going to find it in all of these belief systems and in extinct belief systems. You're going to find it in all because naturally you will. It's it's universal. So that, that there's certainly no claims that no, no ideas in Hermeticism are new. No ideas in Hermeticism originated with Hermeticism as such. Except that Hermeticism, I'm sorry, yes. finish your thought. Finish your thought. Well, yeah, well, that, that was it, just that none of the ideas of Hermeticism originated in Hermeticism. Hermeticism just sort of strip, stripped away some of the mythology, some of the outer baggage that maybe comes along with these ideas in many religions. Am I correct that that is the origins of the Star of David? Well, as for the Star of David, which was something I was going to come back to, yeah, it, it's definitely one of the, the theories that the Star of David is consisting of an upward-pointing triangle and a downward-pointing triangle, and therefore it suggests the the connection and unity of spirit and matter. That's definitely the 
sort of theosophical perspective of it and that's definitely one of the theories put forward whether the whether the idea of the star of david predated the the, the hermetic sort of the hermeticism itself in the sense that um the, the discussion of this idea of as above so below or whatever later the relevance of the star of david as through christianity through the spread of christianity um perhaps attracted the attention of some hermeticists and therefore they adopted it i'm not sure which way around uh this happened but it's certainly it's an important hermetic print uh symbol in modern hermeticism whether it was an ancient hermeticism is is unknown right and i i, I hear the da vinci code fans out there yelling at me no jeff he said that it was it was the talus and the and sort of the knife you know sort of the the, the feminine and the the male you know, sort of penis and vagina sort of merging to show the duality of nature that, uh, you know, Gaia and, uh, you know, Uranus, you know, uh, converged, or I, I probably have the characters wrong there. Um, but, you know, Taoism, you know, every, everything, the duality. So I, I, I know that the, the, the but I, I, you know, my understanding is that the, these, those things are not in conflict either, though I'm sure there are some sects and denominations that feel there are, but that, you know, certain symbols are so universal that they can blend more than one universal truth into one simple symbol. So Da Vinci Code fans, yes, I remember the Da Vinci Code. I'll be, you know, I've, in some ways it, it, it plays some role to blame in this show being in existence, um, as does Land of the Lost. So reconcile that, folks. Um, but Okay, uh, I don't know if you want to add anything to my most recent meandering or if you're just going to let it lie with me and continue on with your cogent discussion. Right, uh, no, I think that's, you know, that's all relevant, uh, actually, to what we're, what we're discussing, really. This, Yeah, also what you said, that the idea that symbols can also have more than one meaning, and I think it's, I think they all, I'd, I'd actually say that every symbol has more than one meaning. There, There is no symbol which can take on a singular meaning. Symbols must have multiple meanings. Then that's because symbols are not the principles themselves. And it's very, that that's something that I think many people forget and that we forget all the time, that principles are not symbols. For example, if like to take a really controversial example, if we're to consider the swastika, the swastika instantly sort of attracts revulsion, anger, um, maybe sadness, these sort of extreme emotions instantly come from the swastika. But the swastika doesn't only mean what it was very sadly um, abused to mean, you know, uh, manipulated to mean during a, what was actually a, a very short period of human history. It, for Imagine the fact that for thousands and thousands of years before that, it had a completely different very positive, deep spiritual meaning. It, it's just incredible how a symbol can change in its meaning. But nowadays, many people would attach this singular interpretation to it, right? And instead of recognizing the many sort of distinctions in its interpretation. And the same could be said of the cross, the same could be said of the Star of David. The same could be said of any of these things. Any sim sim one symbol can take on, you know, a multitude of meanings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and also the uh, 
I think that the, you know, not to go back to the Nazis too much, but the Iron Cross, I think, purposely was sort of abbreviated on the bottom to be to be more symmetrical for that as yes. above, so below kind of symmetry. Certainly, yes. And so I've there's many theories about the cross, but some of these theories suggest that the cross was originally more symmetrical. And yes, that the symmetrical the symmetrical cross is actually found a bit more commonly in esoteric interpretations of Christianity as well, for the reason of as above, so below. That would make sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, another example which we all need to get into is, is you know, why Jesus is associated with a fish. I, I've heard multiple reasons. Some was because it was during the age of Pisces. Other because he had the 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 you know the teach a man to fish quote others were that the the you know his his name in greek the the greek letters spell is the word for fish or so you know or form if the the acronym is is the word for fish um you know all all sorts of things and that's you know where the term the fisher king comes from so yeah i don't know which is right or wrong or maybe maybe they all are maybe the maybe maybe there was that confluence uh to to create it but uh, symbols can mean more than one thing contemporaneously contemporaneously simultaneously and all, and all be uh correct i mean you know we, we can't come to any definitive answer now anyway right certainly and yes that's that, i think that also relates to this hermetic idea of the universality of principles the idea that there are certain truths there are certain principles they can be found everywhere but they take on different forms right and so with the multitude of possible interpretations it's only natural that symbols are going to take on these multiple interpretations so with reincarnation is th- there's no heaven or hell then there's there's just i guess a reincarnation that, or or is there is there heaven hell purgatory is there any equivalent of that angels and demons uh yes well that, that's interesting because again you get kind of different versions of hermeticism and you obviously get christian hermeticism so because hermeticism is perfectly compatible with christianity and can easily you know fit into the christian understanding there can be heaven and hell in hermeticism but there wasn't originally would be would be my interpretation of that so there can be but there doesn't have to be so the only sort of discussion of the afterlife which is really focused on in Hermeticism, is the idea of reincarnation. Okay. And uh, eventual unity with, with the all, with, the, with God. So Hermeticism itself doesn't have these things, but if it's Christian Hermeticism, it, it might. If it's Jewish Hermeticism, it's probably not called that, but it probably wouldn't have your traditional heaven and hell, but would have angels and demons, probably. If it's Islamic I, I'm afraid I'm pretty ignorant on on Islam, and that's something I intend to cure. But I know they have angels and demons. I assume there's at least hell. I, I, I and well, there's heaven because there's this the the virgin thing. And we're back, folks. We had a, a disconnection on Luke's side, and then we had some technical difficulties on my side. But uh, I, I was doing my uh, public meanderings about heaven and hell and angels and demons. So if it was a you know Christian Hermeticism, Jewish Jewish Hermeticism. Islamic Hermeticism in my in fact have those things but her Hermeticism itself doesn't necessarily have the heaven and hell I don't think we got a definitive answer on angels and demons but I, I, I assume it's the same that whatever your other faith is 
that is supplemented by your hermeticism or completed or vice versa that that those concepts would fit into hermeticism equally right exactly yes i i, I think that's uh you know the basic sort of nature of hermeticism of it being universal it can therefore take on a variety of forms and it's only natural that it will so it deals only with these universal principles therefore it, it is essentially quite basic in its in its principles and its ideas they are basic they they don't have so many of the mythological clothings as other belief systems might is there i mean i know we already established that there's no sort of priests or lodges if is there some uh, hierarchy some guide some pastor in hermeticism that when someone comes in from another religion they say okay Here's, here's the things that, that are universal in your religion and our belief systems, and we want to slowly get you to this line, to, to this universal truth, or is it's none of that. It's, it's you believe what you want to believe. Uh, God already knows what's going to happen anyway. So it's, it's all, you know, it, it's all good. We want you to, we want everyone to be good and adhere to universal truths uh, and love thy neighbor. But we're not really trying to do conversions. Yeah, I'd say it's it's much more the sort of the latter in the sense that Hermeticism doesn't attempt to convert. It's usually been more of a mystery school throughout the ages. And as a result, the, it doesn't seek converts. The definitely the beliefs would not be pushed on anyone. In fact, the hermetic principles in most, let's say, hermetic groups which exist or have existed would be taught. The individual's beliefs would not be questioned, but the individual would be encouraged to question their own beliefs. Okay. It's very much an individualistic uh, philosophy yeah, in the sense that you don't have to fit in. You're not expected to accept for, any for one thing purposes. just because it's a hermetic right. principle. Certainly. Uh, a hermeticist yes. would so be encouraged to evaluate their own previous the beliefs that there are, to consider it's whether the they are side or not religion. It's the hidden side of, of and for example, the basic beliefs found in Christianity or in Hinduism or in Buddhism and it's esoteric in the sense that esoteric can also refer to that which is universal okay well I think I understand the the, the concept of hermetic, uh, hermeticism is there anything else on it that's so you know big that, that the audience should know about it uh, and if not maybe you can give them three or four minutes on what your presentation Nacon will you know sort of the high pines to try and uh, sell that a little bit Sure. Um, well, one last point about while well, we're discussing hermeticism, perhaps uh, the most well-known hermetic organization which has ever existed was the, or is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, of course. So this was a very famous, uh, commonly just called the Golden Dawn, very famous fraternal society, sometimes referred to as a secret society, which was founded in the, the late 19th century. 
Um, so this this is very well known due to its connections to such figures as Aleister Crowley, of course, and also it had a huge influence on Wicca and on Philema, and there are more, multiple, maybe dozens of uh, current orders which claim, you know, lineage from the from the Golden Dawn. But the Golden Dawn was a hermetic order, but it was, uh, let's say, modern for the time, you know, uh, in the, the late 19th century, interpretation of hermeticism. But perhaps this was the, the best known and maybe the most influential hermetic order to have existed. So, but the Golden Dawn and that and that and, and hermeticism generally has no relationship to what people often refer to as, refer to as the Great Reset, right? That's that's different entirely. Sorry, to the Great Reset. The Great Reset. Um, no, that's that's not a. It, yeah, I'd, I'd say that, that there's no relationship between those concepts from my understanding of each of them no no the the golden dawn was it's a hermetic organization which applied hermetic principles in a specific fashion in the sense that it was one interpretation of hermeticism and again it, it was an order which didn't have any secret goals or aims you know you you often hear the Golden Dawn referred to in conspiracy theories as a secretly, you know, satanic or secretly Luciferian group or a group which attempted to influence global politics and all these types of things. Um, none of that was true. They, they were and continue to be a simple hermetic order focused very much on personal spiritual development. Okay, I mean, that's what I thought, and that's sort of what I was getting at. I want to make sure I was right and also have someone else say without leading them to it. Um, yeah, because, you know, a lot of times you hear, a, 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 you know, a phrase like the golden dawn, which sounds perfectly lovely, right? Uh, and But but the way it's used, it's sort of twisted into, like, it's almost hiding something evil. Like, you call yourself the, sure. the, the organization for peace, but really you're just trying to kill everyone. Uh, but you call yourself the organization for priests. Or whatever. I mean, you know, Paul, you see that on com political ads all the time here in the in the United States, where one or an organization names itself so that it sounds like it's for something that it's almost diametrically opposed to. Uh, if you look to the candidates or the ads or you know, and, and whatever. Sure. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Um, so fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I knew almost nothing about what hermeticism was and. Uh, you know, hopefully the audience didn't either, or if they did, that this, you know, uh, helped um, reinforce some of their understandings. Uh, and as always, if anybody feels like they have a counterpoint there, they can reach out to me. I'm easy to reach. Uh, Twitter or Facebook are probably the easiest places. The Garden of Doom has a web page. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Facebook page. And on uh, Twitter, I'm at IcarusFellMD. Um, so very easy to reach, and I'm generally pretty responsive as long as I know that you're uh, a real person and not trying to sell me, you know, something only fans. Um, so back to the Nacon thing. What what in general is your presentation going to be on? So the you know why would people want to pay to hear you if they're not already convinced by this uh, fantastic show and the Lilith show and the theosophical underpinnings of Lucifer, which uh, over a year later still is one of the most popular shows monthly. 
they lose right your... well yeah I've, I've actually been asked to expand uh, yes are we connected yeah yeah I'm sorry go ahead yeah okay. yeah so I, I've actually been asked to expand on my last year's topic which was about the esoteric understandings of Nephilim so last time I focused more specifically on the theosophical understandings of Nephilim and what we find spoken about in the secret doctrine and in other theosophical texts I also went into a bit of mythology uh, this time I'm going to be expanding that I'm going to be talking about some of the other esoteric perspectives I'll be broadening it to esotericism in general um, not hermeticism as such because hermeticism actually doesn't really have anything to say about you know uh, other beings and it, it, it's less spoken of in the fundamental hermetica um, but I will be expanding it to discuss you know other esoteric ideas about uh, Nephilim and going into a bit more detail about the, the theosophical perspective and what the secret doctrine says so really I'll be considering both the mythological interpretation and also more literal interpretations, such as scientific interpretations, and I'll also be looking at a more spiritual interpretation as well. Excellent. And audience who always hears me talking about the Nephilim, I'm not going to. Um, you can listen to the prior shows. New audience members, there's tons of shows where we cover the Nephilim and related topics, but more importantly, uh, purchase your tickets to the virtual conference, and you can hear lots of different perspectives, including Luke's, which will be magnificent, but you're going to hear lots of different stuff from people who don't necessarily agree with each other in, in one place. So it's going to be very interesting um, indeed. Uh, Luke, if people want to follow you or support you in any way, is there any way they should, could, or would do that? Right, well, currently I'm, I'm mostly just active on Facebook, and my Facebook is public in the sense that I, I often use my Facebook for public announcements about upcoming talks or courses or other experiences or my works. Um, so yes, uh, Facebook would be the easiest way to follow any of my upcoming events and so on. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, but I'm much more active on Facebook. So that would be my recommendation. Okay, wonderful. All right, folks. Well, thank you very much. Definitely follow Luke, and hopefully you can follow me, and I hope that you learned something today. I know I sure did, and we will hear from you next week in the Garden of Doom. Um, so it's sort of, it, since it's all accommodating, I mean, I can see why it's, it's appealing to, you know, a lot of people involved in esoteric beliefs and, and, you know, occult beliefs, which, you know, by the way, occult doesn't always mean witchcraft and, and uh, I'm talking to the audience now, you know, Luciferianism or, or something just means more hidden and, and often it's talking about universal truths, which is very similar. So I, I, you know, I could see why it would be attractive, you know, in fact, or just for, for branding purposes. Right. Certainly. Yes. So it's esoteric or cult in the sense that there are, it's the hidden side of religion. It's the hidden side of, of, for example, the basic beliefs found in Christianity or in Hinduism or in Buddhism. And it's esoteric in the sense that esoteric can also refer to that which is universal. Okay. 
Well, I think I understand the, the, the concept of hermetic, uh, hermeticism. Is there anything else on it that's so you know, big that, that the audience should know about it? Uh, and if not, maybe you can give them three or four minutes on what your presentation Nacon will, you know, sort of the high pines to try and uh, sell that a little bit. Sure. Um, well, one last point about while we're discussing Hermeticism, perhaps uh, the most well-known Hermetic organization which has ever existed was the, or is the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, of course. So this was a very famous, uh, commonly just called the Golden Dawn, very famous fraternal society, sometimes referred to as a secret society, which was founded in the, the late 19th century. Um, so this, this is very well known due to its connections to such figures as Aleister Crowley, of course, and also it had a huge influence on Wicca and on Philema, and there are more, multiple, maybe dozens of uh, current orders which claim you know, lineage from the, from the Golden Dawn. But the Golden Dawn was a hermetic order, but it was, uh, let's say, modern for the time, you know, uh, in the, the late 19th century interpretation of hermeticism but perhaps this was the the best known and maybe the most influential hermetic order to have existed so but the golden dawn and that and that and, and hermeticism generally has no relationship to what people often refer to as, refer to as the great reset right that's that's different entirely sorry to the great reset the great reset um no that's that's not a it, yeah I, i'd say that th there's no relationship between those concepts from my understanding of each of them no no the the golden dawn was it's a hermetic organization which applied hermetic principles in a specific fashion in the sense that it was one interpretation of hermeticism and again it, it was an order which didn't have any secret goals or aims you know you you often hear the golden dawn referred to in conspiracy theories as a secretly you know satanic or secretly luciferian group or a group which attempted to influence global politics and all these types of things um none of that was true they they were and continue to be a simple hermetic order focused very much on personal spiritual development okay i mean that's what i thought and that's sort of what i was getting at i want to make sure i was right and also have someone else say without leading them to it um yeah because you know the a lot of times you hear a, a, a you know a phrase like the golden dawn, which sounds perfectly lovely, right? Uh, and but but the way it's used, it's sort of twisted into like it's almost hiding something evil. Like you call yourself the sure. the the organization for peace, but really you're just trying to kill everyone. Uh, but you call yourself the organization for peace. Or I mean, you know, you see that on political ads all the time here in the in the United States, where one or an organization names itself so that it sounds like it's for something that it's almost diametrically opposed to. Uh, if you look to the candidates or the ads or, you know, and, and whatever. Sure. Okay. All right. All right. Very good. Um, so fascinating stuff. Uh, I, I knew almost nothing about what hermeticism was. And, uh, you know, hopefully the audience didn't either. Or if they did, that this, you know, uh, helped um, reinforce some of their understandings. 
Uh, and as always, if anybody feels like they have a counterpoint there, they can reach out to me. I'm easy to reach. Uh, Twitter or Facebook are probably the easiest places. The Garden of Doom has a web page. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Facebook page. And on uh, Twitter, I'm at IcarusFellMD. Um, so e very easy to reach. And I'm generally pretty responsive as long as I know that you're uh, a real person and not trying to sell me, you know, something only fans. Um, so back to the Nacon thing. What what in general is your presentation going to be on? So, the you know, why would people want to pay to hear you if they're not already convinced by this uh, fantastic show and the Lilla show and the theosophical underpinnings of Lucifer, which uh, over a year later still is one of the most popular shows monthly. Did I lose right. You? Well, yeah, I've actually been asked to expand. Uh, yes. Are we connected? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so well, I've actually been asked to expand on my last year's topic which was about the esoteric understandings of nephilim so last time i focused more specifically on the theosophical understandings of nephilim and what we find spoken about in the secret doctrine and in other theosophical texts i also went into a bit of mythology uh this time i'm going to be expanding that i'm going to be talking about some of the other esoteric perspectives i'll be broadening it to esotericism in general um not hermeticism as such because hermeticism actually doesn't really have anything to say about you know uh, other beings and it, it, it's less spoken of in the fundamental Hermetica, um, but I will be expanding it to discuss, you know, other esoteric ideas about uh, Nephilim and going into a bit more detail about the, the Theosophical perspective and what the Secret Doctrine says. So really I'll be considering both the mythological interpretation and also more literal interpretations, such as scientific interpretations, and I'll also be looking at a more spiritual interpretation as well. Excellent. And audience who always hears me talking about the Nephilim, I'm not going to. Um, you can listen to the prior shows. New audience members, there's tons of shows where we cover the Nephilim and related topics, but more importantly, uh, purchase your tickets to the virtual conference and you can hear lots of different perspectives, including Luke's, which will be magnificent, but you're going to hear lots of different stuff from people who don't necessarily agree with each other in, in one place. So it's going to be very interesting um, indeed. Uh, Luke, if people want to follow you or support you in any way, is there any way they should, could, or would do that? Right, well, currently I'm, I'm mostly just active on Facebook, and my Facebook is public in the sense that I, I often use my Facebook for public announcements about upcoming talks or courses or other experiences or my works. Um, so yes, uh, Facebook would be the easiest way to follow any of my upcoming events and so on. Um, you can also find me on Instagram, but I'm much more active on Facebook. So that would be my recommendation. Okay, wonderful. All right, folks. Well, thank you very much. Definitely follow Luke, and hopefully you can follow me, and I hope that you learned something today. I know I sure did, and we will hear from you next week. Bye.